Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word. I expect you brought it with you. If not, look on with uh, somebody who's next to you. Uh, You'll see the verses that we'll read on the screens behind me in a moment. Nehemiah chapter 10. Um, You've, I think, known me long enough to know that uh, I don't change my plans. So uh, even in the even in the middle of difficult circumstances, we're, we're moving through Nehemiah. I trust that God in his help to me in planning um, sermon series through books of the Bible, that God is also planning uh, or, or, or intending for them to come at the right time and in the right way. And, uh, and so I trust that the purpose of God's word in Nehemiah 10 will be meaningful and applicable for us today, uh, even though we're in a different state, maybe emotionally and spiritually, than we thought we would be when we came here this morning. Nehemiah chapter 10. You may know that the state of Missouri's unofficial state model is show me. Missouri is the show me state. Um, Most of my life, I assumed I knew or thought I knew what that meant, that people like to be shown things. Like apparently Missourians are just really curious. They like to be shown things. That, of course, makes no sense. The most widely known legend, though, behind this motto of the state, show me, is attributed, uh, the the phrase is attributed to Missouri's U.S. Congressman Willard Duncan Vandiver, who served in the United States House of Representatives from 1897 to 1903. And While he was a member of the U.S. House Committee on Naval Affairs, Van Diver attended an 1899 naval banquet in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And in a speech that he gave there, he declared, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats, and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri. You've got to show me. The fact that Missouri is the show-me state indicates, as this legend tells us, that words don't mean anything without action. That the character of a person is really what demonstrates, what communicates the commitments that that person holds. Here in Nehemiah chapter 10, these Jews who have been brought by God's grace back from exile in Persia to their homeland in Jerusalem, having completed the temple some 70, the rebuilding of the temple some 70 years before this moment, and having recently completed the wall around the city. And as we saw from Nehemiah chapter 9 last week, the people gathering together to confess and repent of their sin before God. Now they come together in Nehemiah 10, or the, the events from Nehemiah 9, I should say, continue into Nehemiah 10, where now these Jews recommit themselves to keep God's law, to live out their commitment as God rebuilds them as a people. The main idea that comes to us from Nehemiah 10 is this, that character communicates commitment. The life of the individual speaks volumes about the convictions that they say that they have, the commitments that they say that they hold in their heart. Character communicates commitment. As God's new covenant people in Christ, friends, we ought to live with such character that communicates the commitments of our faith. Our lives, our actions should communicate clearly what we believe about God, what we believe about our need for salvation, what we believe about Jesus Christ, our Savior, and how we have life and hope in Him. Will you stand with me 
as we honor God by reading his word from Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 29. It sounds like a lot of verses, but um, it's not that many. And Some of you have already glanced down at the passage this morning, and you know what's coming, and you're interested to see how well I'm going to do. Well, joke's on you. I've been practicing. Chapter 9, verse 38 ends this way. Because of all of this, the people say, we make a firm commitment in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And here they are. On the seals of the names, on the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malak, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin. That was the hardest one, by the way. I wasn't really sure where the emphasis went on what syllable there. Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui, of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel. And their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalaita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob. Hashabiah, Zachor, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Benai, Beninu, the chiefs of the people, Parosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Benai, Buni, Asgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Ader, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hezer, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, and Aya. Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabna, Maaseah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Harim, Bana. Verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a, cur- enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our God, and his rules and his statutes. This is God's word. You may be seated. Character communicates commitment. And as we come to these first 29 verses of Nehemiah 10, we see a people committed. A people committed. We find here in the very first many verses of this chapter a section that most of us would likely skim over. And let me say, I would have rather done so this morning than read all of those names. These long lists of names that we have in multiple places of the Old Testament, not just here in Nehemiah, but goodness, you go to Chronicles, and Chronicles is just list upon list upon list of people These long lists of names of people that we don't know and who don't appear in our own personal family trees often get overlooked. But for a moment, I invite you this morning, put yourself in the shoes of one of these Jews who has gathered to recommit themselves along with the rest of the people to being faithful to God on this day in Jerusalem. Before you on that day stand and on the seals of the rude nude covenant are the names of your leaders, the governor, Nehemiah. 
the many priests, the Levites. The Levites were the, the temple workers. Those are the ones that were facilitating much of the ongoing worship in the temple. The heads of all of the families are all putting their names and their reputation on the line as representatives of the people to keep God's law. What a powerful image. If you were a Jew that day in Jerusalem, you may have seen your grandfather write his name on one of those seals. You probably were led in confession of sin and repentance by the Levites whose name were, names were on these seals. You may have had your hands covered in mortar and dust as you worked alongside some of these men who were named to rebuild the wall not many weeks before. This here in Nehemiah 10 is a real commitment by real people. Men of God resolved to put their faith to action. But this day of commitment is for more than just the leaders who are named here. It's more than than just those who lead the people that make this commitment. Verse 28 tells us that the rest of the people, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, joined with their brothers in this renewed commitment. The promise that is entered into here, a promise to keep God's law, to keep his instruction for his people that we have in the law of God, the first five books of uh, the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Everyone who, who is a part of the faithful remnant of Israel that God has preserved during their time of exile in Persia is on this day committed to keeping it. Everyone who could understand. Just like in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, where everyone who could understand the law of God, children and adolescents included, everyone who could understand the law was present to hear the law read in the presence of all the people. So now everyone who can understand the law are present to commit themselves to keeping the law. Even children and adolescents included. We're told that those who are present are everyone who had separated themselves from foreigners. A separation from foreigners on this day of commitment communicates the holiness of the commitment that's being made. That word holy means simply set apart, different, uh, 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 separated from things that are not holy. The people are communicating that the commitment that they're making to God is a holy commitment. They are setting themselves apart in a very physical way from the pagan and idolatrous peoples around them. This is a commitment for all true worshipers of the Lord, all true worshipers of Yahweh who have forsaken false gods to love and to worship the true God. Now, some of you and may be tempted to read this separation from foreigners as a, a, a sort of an act of xenophobic exclusion. Oh, we don't want to be around those people. But that's not what's going on. This separation from foreigners is a theological declaration. It's the people of Israel saying, the worship of Yahweh cannot and must not be confused with the worship of other lesser false gods. We worship him and him only. And by the way, anyone who desires to worship him and him only is welcome to join us. Make this observation with me that those who are able here to understand God's law, those are the ones who are present, everyone who can hear it and understand it, are obligated to keep it. Those who can understand God's law are obligated to keep God's law, and they're responsible for not keeping it. This old covenant reality is revisited in light of the new covenant in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Where there, Paul the Apostle says that all people, Jew and Gentile, every person who's ever lived on the face of the earth, at some point of cognition, some point of development, is able to discern that there is a God, that he is powerful, and that he is divine. All people are able to understand that there is a God who exists, who has made the world, made the cosmos in which we live, And that he has divine power. But Paul goes on to say that these same people, Jew and Gentile, all alike, have also rejected the worship of the only true God for all kinds of idolatry that our own 
hearts make up and have thus made themselves children of wrath under the judgment of God. This is true for all of us. All of us at some point in our lives, whether or not we're walking with Christ today, all of us at some point in our lives have intentionally rebelled against a God that we understood and knew that was there. Knowledge begets responsibility. As soon as you know something, you're responsible to act upon it. As soon as you know and are are able to understand that there is a God, you are responsible to respond to him with faith and worship and love. And the reality is, as Scripture tells us, all of us have first chosen to worship ourselves than to worship him. But these Jews on this day in Nehemiah 10 are recognizing that though they had once rejected God, they wished to no longer. That once they and their ancestors had disobeyed his voice, that today they wish to no longer. That, that over centuries and generations, these people had spurned God's grace and mercy and loving kindness to them. On this day in Nehemiah 10, they wish to no longer. Recognizing, knowing God, today they're making a conscious decision. We will worship him. The wonderful new covenant reality is that the same invitation to come into right relationship with God, to worship Him, to to commit your life to, to being made right with Him. That same invitation extends far beyond your, uh, goes far beyond your alignment with an ethnic group of people in a particular city. Now this call to be right with God extends to all nations and to all people. Wherever you are, if you hear God's voice, recognize your sins and turn from them to, be, to, to make Jesus, the Son of God, your Lord, you will be saved. Amen. Scripture promises that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified, made right to God. And it's with the mouth that one confesses Jesus is Lord and is saved. Romans 10 Nehemiah 10, these first verses, we see a people by name committed to the Lord, committed to faithfulness to Him. Friend, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, wherever you are with God, with Christ, I invite you, commit yourself to Christ today. Commit yourself to Christ today and know the blessing of a right relationship with God. The text goes on. We read verses 30 through 39. Nehemiah writes, recording the words of the people and their commitment, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at the times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as, it's, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. 
and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. We have in the first verses of Nehemiah 10 a people committed. We have in verses 30 through 39 the very character of their commitment, the nature of what it is they're committing to do. And the character of their commitment is revealed in at least three different ways. First of all, in verse 30, through holiness in marriage. They say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This first covenant renewal, again, on its face, might, might seem like the Jews are acting in xenophobic, ethnocentric ways. We don't intermarry with people that aren't like us. But that's not what this commitment not to marry their sons or their daughters off to foreigners is about. This commitment is profoundly theological. This renewal is based upon the law of God that's given to us in Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 12, where there the Lord says through Moses, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Verse 16, and you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters go after their gods and make your sons to go after their gods. And God's instruction to his people not to join in marriage to foreign women or to give their daughters to the sons of foreign men was for the, for the purpose of preserving the holiness of the people's worship. This command and covenant renewal is far less, friends, about ethnic purity. In fact, it's not about ethnic purity at all. It's all about spiritual purity. It was a command that Solomon, the king of Israel himself, disobeyed and began a long downward trajectory of leading God's people into idolatry as he made these sort of political alignments through marriage to the daughters of foreign pagan idolatrous kings, thus bringing all sorts of idolatry into the nation of Israel and even to the temple of God. This commitment should not be taken as a command not to marry people who are not ethnically Jewish or even not to marry people who are ethnically different than us. That, that would be to completely misunderstand what's being said here. But not to marry people who are not Jews in the commitment of their hearts. Indeed, Ruth was a Moabite woman, not of the people of Israel. And she herself made a personal covenant to worship Yahweh alone as God. Her faithfulness to Yahweh, though, though she was Moabite in heritage, though she was Moabite by ethnicity, made her marriage to the Jewish man Boaz legitimate in both spirit and law. Because it's not a person's background that determines their holiness before God. It's a person's posture of their heart. Do they love and worship God above all else? And we all recognize, I hope, the great influence that marriage has upon our lives and upon our actions day to day. When we enter into this most sacred union designed by God, we are joining ourselves to another person. Our life to their life. Marriage is meant In this holy amalgamation of two souls, marriage is meant to strengthen the commitments of each person in it. And by its nature, marriage brings two people together, as Scripture says, into one flesh, so that their their lives are inextricably intertwined. So if a man and a woman coming into marriage are both devoted in heart and soul to the Lord, then their combined devotion will be amplified in the context of their marriage. But if the two are devoted to different gods or one to the Lord and one to another God, their union will be full of compromised worship in both directions. God calls his people to single-minded worship 
and single-minded devotion to himself. So this pillar of the life of God's people, spiritual purity in marriage, does not go away with the new covenant in Christ, but is instead underlined. Christian, if you are not yet married, the word of God from 2 Corinthians 6.14 is clear. You are not to be yoked in life through marriage to a man or to a woman who does not love Christ above all, lest you be tempted to compromise on your faithfulness to Christ above all. And Christian, if you find yourself married to someone who is not a Christian, I would venture to say you know very well firsthand the strain in marriage that I'm talking about, the strain in marriage that comes with being married to someone who doesn't share the very same, very deep heart-level commitments that you do. To you, I do not say, divorce your unbelieving spouse. We know that God hates divorce. He hates the pain that it brings. But if you find yourself, Christian, married to someone who is not a believer, rather, I say, pray for your unbelieving husband or wife. Pray like their life depends on it, because it does. And live with such winsome godliness in your marriage that your spouse sees the joy of knowing Christ and is won over by your example. And be determined with God's help never to compromise faithfulness to Jesus for the sake of keeping peace at home. We're not called to be peacekeepers, but to be peacemakers. And so, as a Christian living in a marriage with an unbeliever, be a peacemaker, seeking to find your spouse brought to peace with God through the hope of the gospel and faith in Jesus. The character of the people's commitment is first illustrated by holiness in marriage, but it's also illustrated in verse 31 by mindfulness of God's provision. Verse 31 gives a retelling of this commitment to keep the Sabbath and other holy days as well. We know that one of the key distinguishing marks of the Hebrews all through the Old Testament was their day of Sabbath rest. It's commanded in the Ten Commandments. You shall keep the Sabbath day, honor the Sabbath day as holy. It was commanded by God there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. It was to be kept as a day to worship God and to rest in light of his provision. Our rest, week by week, or the rest of God's people, week by week, is modeled after God's rest. God worked in creation seven day, six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Not because he was tired, God's omnipotent, he doesn't need a nap, but he rests as a king on his throne to sit in authority over all that he has done. So also he calls his people to rest, to rest from their work in part because they are human and they are not omnipotent and they do need a nap, but also because they are called to stop working one day, to stop working to provide for themselves for one day of the week so that they can depend upon and learn to worship in light of the God who provides all that is needed. They also commit themselves not to farming the land once every seven years, which seems like a really foolish thing to many people. Why would you not farm land one year out of every seven? But this was a theological declaration. It was, a, it was an act of worship, declaring the dependence of the people upon God for every good thing year by year. Likewise, they forgive every debt that somebody else owed them every seventh year, signifying a relationship with a forgiving God that, that fills and characterizes every relationship among the people. You may be wondering this morning, do we as Christians need to keep the Sabbath day or a day of Sabbath rest like the Jews did? They commit to it. Should we commit to it? Well, hear what Paul says to the Romans in uh, his letter, Romans chapter 14, verses 5 through 8. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Here he's speaking about the fact that within a church that's made up of both Jews and Gentiles, some of them 
keep the Sabbath day, and some of them don't. And Paul says, you're all there worshiping together. Whatever you do, each one should be convinced in his own mind. He goes on in Romans 14, verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in, the honor, in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The point is this. A Sabbath day is not about refraining from work for the sake of pleasing God. You're not called to show up at church on Sunday to keep God happy. To make sure that he doesn't rain his displeasure down on you. No, The Sabbath day is about resting from work in the middle of worship-filled knowledge of God, setting aside our our desire to do it all ourselves, to say, ultimately, God, I can do nothing for myself. I'm dependent upon you for all things. Ultimately, the weekly Sabbath practiced by the Hebrews points us to a spiritual Sabbath rest that is ours in Christ, who gives us rest in heart, soul, and mind from the weight and the burden of sin Even the weekly Sabbath of the Old Covenant points to an eternal Sabbath in the presence of God as Jesus himself does all that we need, provides all that we need that we might enter into his rest, spiritual rest, no longer burdened by sin. So friend, if you're personally convicted that God would have you to take a Sabbath day each week for rest and worship, take it and be well convinced by God to do so. And if you're personally convinced that the rest that is fulfilled in Christ gives you freedom to work on the day that you also worship, then do so. Only in all things, Christian, regardless of how you view the Sabbath and the life of the Christian today, the new covenant person of God, be convinced that whatever you do, you do it with full-hearted worship of God, seeking to please Him, living for His glory, pursuing His kingdom. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The character of the people's commitment is holiness in marriage, uh, mindfulness of God's provision, but also in verses 32 through 39, a dedication to worship. In the last several verses of this chapter, the Jews together rededicate themselves to all that is necessary for worshiping God under the old covenant. Now, old covenant worship in its very nature was, was very come and see in its construction, Worship took place in a physical temple, in a physical city, and it required a lot of implements and supplies. It was very visual in its practice. As you go through and maybe read uh, parts of Exodus and Leviticus, and you see how worship was to be done in the tabernacle and later the temple, you just see how visual and and, uh, kinesthetic all of this worship was, and and that in this old covenant idea of worship or structure of worship that God gives his people, it is a call for people to come to the temple, from wherever they are, to arrive to a place where they will worship God together. It's very come and see. And this is by God's design. He does it on purpose. For as the people came to the temple, they were reminded that God had called them to himself and that they were to be holy and different, set apart from the pagan nations around them. More than anything, the worship of the Hebrews identified them with their God, the God, against all other gods. And so here as they rededicate themselves to the worship of Yahweh in the way that God has instructed that they do it, they also commit to all that is necessary for keeping up this worship. They recommit to bringing offerings of the first fruits of their fields and their flocks and to an offering of their income to purchase supplies to be used in their worship in the temple. They commit to a tithe, that's 10% 
of their possessions and of their income for the livelihood of the Levites and the priests. You remember the Levites and the priests didn't have a tribal allotment among the people of Israel. Their allotment was the temple. They didn't have land to farm. Their work was temple work. And so it was the agricultural produce of the other people that was sent to the Levites to care for them physically. These here are people devoted to the right and sustained worship of God, bringing all that is necessary to make sure that they are a people characterized by their worship. And don't miss this. Worship still defines God's people. Old covenant and new covenant, before Christ, in light of Christ, worship still defines God's people. In light of the new covenant in Christ's blood, the people of God are still called to be defined, to be characterized by our worship, by our praise of God, by our devotion to Him, in song and in teaching and in prayer. But in the new covenant, the methodology for engaging the nations through worship is no longer come and see. We no longer go to a physical temple in a physical city among an ethnic group of people to worship God. Now, in light of what Christ has done on the cross, the the worship uh, uh, emphasis, the worship impulse is no longer come and see, but go and tell. Jesus himself gives the command to his disciples. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, Matthew uh, chapter 28. And the promise, he gives a promise to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Where the old covenant calls people to come and see the faithfulness of God. The old covenant call was to witness the gracious forgiveness of sins by God through the substitutionary sacrifice of animals in the place of the sins of the people. But Jesus' sacrifice doesn't take place in the temple, does it? It takes place outside the city, as the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 12 tells us. His death outside the city is in a place where everyone can go. In the temple, only Jews could go into certain courts of the temple. Only priests could go into certain rooms of the temple. And only the high priest could go into the most holy place of the temple. And that only one time a year. But Jesus doesn't die in the most holy place where only one person can come. He dies outside the city gates where everyone can witness his sacrifice For sins, his death was witnessed not just by those who were privileged to come near, but his death was witnessed by all who are both near to and far from God. And having brought the purpose of the temple to its fullest meaning, Jesus now commissions the people of God, his disciples, to live as those who no longer need to come and see that God is faithful, but who are commissioned to go and tell all that God grants forgiveness to everyone who calls on him in faith. Brothers and sisters, are we so dedicated to be known by our public worship of God? Indeed, gathering together as a church for worship weekly like this is right and good and commanded of us. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. We do well to come together for worship. But our purpose in doing this is not so we can come and see. Our purpose in doing this is so we can be equipped, edified as followers of Christ to go and tell the faithfulness of God to the nations. Our worship does not take place only inside these walls. As one who worships the God who came in flesh to rescue us, friend, do you worship him by going and telling others of his great grace? You're meant to. As Jesus died for sins outside the city where everyone could witness him, Christian, do you take the news of Christ outside the church house where all may come to know him? We're meant to. In Nehemiah chapter 10, we see a people who are committed 
and the character of their commitment, the, the, the life that they will live that demonstrates their devotion to God. In light of all this, Christian, I call you, I call us, to live with character that conveys our commitment to Christ. To live in such a way that our commitment to Jesus above all is evident to all that we go and tell. Character communicates commitment. As I was thinking about that phrase and rolling it over in my head, character communicates commitment, character communicates commitment. I was taken back in my mind to middle school. I went to middle school at LBJ, just kind of across the street over there. And I remember for those three years, we had these banners all over school. Character counts banners. There's a millennial somewhere in this room that uh, can testify. There we go. Character counts. And there were six pillars, I think, of character counts. Uh, I think responsibility and respect and trustworthiness were three of them. I don't remember the other three. Uh, Someone else does. Citizenship, is that one of them? That's so weird. (laughs) Six pillars of character that we were supposed to embody and embrace and to live out as middle schoolers. By the way, asking middle schoolers to do anything with like real commitment is just an exercise in futility. (laughs) Middle schoolers, it's not your fault. We had these banners all over school. Character counts, character counts. Six pillars of character. And I don't remember what any of those pillars were. But I hope that the character of my life demonstrates in some way that, that I've, I've embodied some of those things, embraced some of those things, that hopefully I could walk into LBJ and if those, if those uh, uh, banners are still on the wall, that I could say, oh yeah, I see that in my life. I see that in my life. And hopefully other people will be able to say, yeah, I see that in his life. That's good. Those are good things. It's one thing to say, I believe this, I value this, I'm committed to this, and put a banner on the wall. It's another thing entirely to live that out in your life day to day. It's one thing to say as we do and we, and, and we reiterate and, and reemphasize week by week. It's one thing to say, Jesus is Lord, week by week. To have that on, we could put it on banners all over this church building, couldn't we? And we could all look at those banners and say, yeah, that's right. That is a good thing. But if we go out into the world and our character does not demonstrate that Jesus is Lord, well, then we've not embraced that value, have we? We've not embraced that commitment, have we? Character communicates commitment. At the end of the day, dear friend, I mean, the words that we say, the the doctrines that we affirm, the truth of Scripture that we hold to and proclaim are good and important and right, but they don't amount to a hill of beans if we don't actually live them out, if they don't impact the way that we live in the world. It's not enough to simply say that God is a God of grace if we go out and live with unforgiveness in our hearts toward others. It's not enough to say that we have hope of resurrection if we're living this life like it's the only one that we'll ever get. It doesn't communicate much about our commitment if we say Jesus is Lord, but everything that I do serves my own self-interest. Character communicates commitment. Brothers and sisters, friends, many of you have made commitments to Christ over the years and By God's grace, he's sustaining us to walk in faith and to live lives of character that display that that very deep and profound commitment to Christ as Lord that we have made and praise God for it. There may be some still 
in this room, I don't know. Only you and your own heart know before God, but some who maybe have made a commitment to Christ, maybe, maybe hung a banner on the wall of their heart, but yet are not living with the character uh, of that commitment. Perhaps when you were a child, you, you, walked down an, you walked down an aisle and you prayed, a, pastor with a, uh, prayed a, par- a prayer with the pastor and you were dunked in water on a Sunday morning and you thought that was your commitment to Jesus. But every day of your life since then, you've been living for yourself and what you can get for yourself and to please yourself. Dear friend, the character of your life does not demonstrate that that commitment was genuine. Perhaps today you need to, to make a new, a fresh commitment, to make that commitment for real. To confess Christ as Lord of your life. Lord means king, means boss, means master, commander of your soul. Not just buddy who helps me out in a tough time. Maybe you need to make a commitment to Christ as Lord, to trust him as king, to give your life in submission and and reliance for his death, uh, for your sins and his resurrection, for the promise of your resurrection. Maybe you need to make that commitment today. Maybe you need to be saved today. Christian, maybe you need to bring your life, the character of your life, by God's help, into greater consistency with the commitment that you say you have to Jesus as Lord. Perhaps you've been walking away from or, or, or at least sitting still as Christ moves forward. You've not been following him as you committed that you would do. Perhaps today, even as we took time last week to, to, to repent of our sins, maybe today you need to repent of slackness in your walk with Christ. Christian, maybe today you've been walking faithfully with God since the day that you professed faith in him. And you just need to worship in light of God's grace and help to give you strength to follow him faithfully all these years. We have a good many of us in this church whose character conveys their commitment. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for people like John and Susan Montoya who until the day of their death yesterday lived lives of character that displayed their commitment to Christ. Life's full of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But don't think that just because character communicates commitment, that there's an emphasis upon the character of the people in Nehemiah 10, that the way that you live is all that matters. Commitments matter too. Commitments matter too. God doesn't give salvation freely to people who don't see their need for it. So you can live a good life. You can never kill anybody, never cheat anybody out of money. You can live your whole life doing all the good things, being a good citizen. You could fulfill all the six pillars, whatever they are, of character counts and still not be right with God. Because in as much as character communicates commitments, commitments still matter. The people of Israel are not committing to just marry people of like faith, keep a Sabbath, bring stuff to the temple because it's the right thing to do. They're doing it because they love the God who has called them to this life. Character communicates commitments, absolutely, but commitments, dear friend, matter. So if you're living your life just trying to be a good person, apart from any devotion, any connection to Christ as Lord and King, you've missed it. At the end of your life, it will be fruitless. It will be pointless. You'll have done all of those nice things for other people in futility, apart from commitment to God, apart from love for Christ, apart from repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus, who died to give himself for you that you might be saved and was raised from the dead. Friend, have you made that commitment? If not, I invite you to do it today.
If you need to change the character of your life to match the commitment to Christ that you've made, I invite you to do that today. In a moment, I'll pray. We'll we'll move into a time of closing. Pastor Danny will give us a, a word of benediction or prayer as we go. And friend, whatever business you may need to do with God, whatever commitments you need to make, I invite you to stay in this room and make them. I'll be outside to greet uh, you all as you go and um, invite you to let me know. Share with me how God is working on your heart and how God's leading you to be obedient to his word today. But don't leave apart from making a commitment. Don't leave apart from asking God to shape your character, to match your profession that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together.